question that you're all asking yourselves. Where does he get a body like that? <laughs> and I hear the whispers around town that he's CrossFit, P90X, or maybe he's a yoga master. But in fact, it's none of those things. In fact, I do a class at the Burbank YMCA called Aqua Burn. You better believe we get it burning in there. We get it really burning in Aqua Burn. My wife, as we were expecting our first child, recommended that I start doing some water aerobics uh, because I have a back condition called my closing spondylitis. And she said, well, you want to be able to hold your kids as often as possible, which I definitely did. And so she said, how about you go try a fitness class? And I went to the one that sounded the hardest at the Burbank YMCA. But I showed up to Aqua Burn, and the lifeguard immediately came over to me and said, are you sure this is going to be hard enough for you? Which I took as quite a bit of a compliment. It's like, hey, I've never had somebody when I've showed up to an athletic event of any kind say, oh, wow, you're too good for the room. <laughs> to give an understanding of my athletic prowess, my great friend Colin Packard just preached a fantastic uh, sermon this morning. He and I organized grad school games when we were at ACU, and it was his class versus my class in football. And the first year, my class was able to pull out the victory, but the second year, when you gave Packer a year to prepare and scheme, uh, he was able to shut us out. And that's pretty embarrassing to be shut out against like a grad student theology defense. But we were <laughs> able to come through. They weren't exactly the Baltimore Ravens in 2001, but we weren't able to figure out how to get anything past them. So for the lifeguard to come up to me, I thought it was a bit of a compliment. I appreciated it. And I immediately got the feeling of why he would say such a thing. As I got into the aqua burn class, I realized that most of the people in there were above the age of 65, and most of them were women. So it was a bit of an odd experience at first, and I've actually been participating in aqua burn for about four years, and it still can be a weird experience every time we do the tiny bubbles in the wine song, and that one is just brutal. It's like tiny bubbles. <laughs> seconds. 
or else you're not going to watch a video. And then you have social media, whatever platform that you choose. And you have all of these things and statuses flying at you, and you have to decide, am I going to like it? Am I going to comment? Is this person close enough to me for me to actually interact with them or not? You're just making these decisions all the time. We're so judgy now, we're judgmental about being judgy. But most of life, I would say, the things that, at least for me, have been worth doing are like Aquaburn. It feels a little bit weird at first, but ultimately, it can be incredibly life-giving. Which brings me to the book of Ezekiel. And I'm very thankful that Mike asked me to do a keynote. I grew up in Los Angeles. I actually worked at my home church. And so I came to the lecture as a kid, and I was a Pepperdine student as well. So one of the reasons I love preaching is hearing from some of the great speakers of our movement. So I got to see uh, fantastic speakers who encouraged me and helped me to think one day about ministry. I also want to say thank you uh, to my church. Uh, it's such a blessing to minister at the Pentecostal Church of Christ. I've been there for almost 10 years. As Mike said, I'm now the longest tenured minister in Glendale's history, and it's the first full-time ministry that I've had. And even though I'm an imperfect person, I've made mistakes. They love me and my family so well. I also want to say thank you uh, to my wife, Mandy, who is a great support to me. Uh, she obviously got me enrolled in Aquaburn, and uh, <laughs> she is just a fantastic wife, and with Mother's Day just around the corner, even better mother. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this keynote. And then a week later, after my cast, he said, and by the way, you're doing Ezekiel. Which I know I look like a great athlete, but I'm not really an Ezekiel scholar. <laughs> so I got the chance over this last year to really think through this challenging book. And I have to say, there's a lot for us to think about. And some of the prophetic books I would argue are mainly ignored, I would think. And there's some great things for us to consider. The first commentary that I read on Ezekiel, which was a bit dusty on my shelf, it said, most of you are probably reading this commentary out of curiosity or desperation or a mixture of both. <laughs> I was definitely at the beginning in the both category, but it's been very life-giving for me to think through the mindset of Ezekiel, the nation of Israel. Ezekiel finds himself in a pretty hopeless situation. He and the nation of Israel are in a foreign land in exile, and as Ezekiel is written, the temple ends up being destroyed. And so the people of God are asking some really hard questions. How do you worship God when the place where you worship God is gone? And this is a really hard question for anyone in Israel to answer, but it's especially hard for Ezekiel, because he is the son of a priest on the way to being a priest. To understand the mindset of a priest is to know rules and regulations. It's about order and symmetry and finding God in the order and the symmetry and repetition of life. And all of a sudden, that's gone. And if you've been around faith long enough, you've probably had an experience like this. Where you might have said, how do I worship God when blank has happened? How do I worship God when it feels like the community that I've given my life to has burned me? How do I worship God when this unexpected loss happens? How do I worship God in this situation? Does God even care? Is God even there? We likely have all had some moments where we've tasted exile. I love how Tamara Eskenazi says this. She says, exile, it's not simply being homeless. Rather, it's knowing that you do have a home and that your home has been taken over by enemies. 
Exile, it's not being without roots. On the contrary, it's having deep roots which have now been plucked up. And there you are with roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to native and nurturing soil. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back there, not yet. I love that image of being pulled up from the roots because there are things that happen to us that do pull up our roots. And even if we are replanted, we will never be the same. This didn't just happen to people a thousand, few thousand years ago. It still happens. And for much of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is charged with giving a message of condemnation to the people. And he has to do this in some really strange ways, some bizarre sign acts. For example, he has to lay on his side for 400 days. And the people aren't going to listen. And then he has to eat this bread, which is horrible. It's weird that we have Ezekiel bread in stores, but he has charged with eating <laughs> this awful bread. And the strangest part of it is God says, and by the way, Ezekiel, you will have to cook this over human excrement. And that's the point where Ezekiel says, I'm drawing a line right there. Like, that is one thing too far. And then they settle on human or animal excrement, which for me, I go, Ezekiel, you're not that great of a negotiator. You think you can say, like, who else is going to do this horrible job, right? Let's at least go with some sticks or something. But God gives him this task, and Ezekiel is faithful to it. And chapter after chapter, there's condemnation. Chapter after chapter, there's explanation. Okay, you have kind of removed me from the center of where I need to be, and so I'm kind of just giving you over to that. You now find yourself in exile. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the background in Ezekiel. I'd recommend reading the entire book because it's pretty hopeless for a lot of the time, and it feels like cheating to preach the hopeful passage. Because you don't realize how hopeful it actually is until you really drag yourself through the mud of the rest of Ezekiel. But then there's this amazing passage. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 and 2, says, The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. These bones have been dead so long that they're not like half dead. They are very, very, very dead. The buzzards have come. The skin is gone. This is a hopeless group of people. This is not looking forward to anything. This is dead. It's over. Time to move on. And if we're honest, if we've been around church for any amount of time, church can sometimes feel like this. Where we wonder, are we leaning into the hope that we should have? Are we living out this hope? If you've been part of a church for any amount of time, you know the good stuff about a church, but you also know there's some weaknesses of that church as well. And it's hard for us to continue to lean into this hope. And as ministers, we know this as well. The first ministry that I was blessed to be able to preach at was in Auckland, Texas. It's a 15-member church, 40 minutes outside of Abilene. And I'm from L.A., so Abilene felt like nowhere. So this place was 40 minutes outside of Nowhere. Uh, and this group of 15 people, mostly Aquaburn demographics, I spent a lot of my time with And in this, this group of 15 people, there was one guy who every single Sunday that I preached, he would just stare out the window the entire time. 
That's one thing if you're preaching to a relatively large crowd. But when it's 15 of you in there, and there's just one guy who just no matter what is staring out there. I'm up there. I'm in preaching school at the time. I'm going to preaching classes. So I'm learning about these like jujitsu preaching moves. And this time I'm going to get him. And I have a really funny story here at the end. And he would just stare out the window no matter what I did. And there was another time when a guy who literally was just two rows in front of me took out his dentures and said, <laughs> Together. 
Now, we can often think of this passage as having hints of the one-day resurrection, which I think is there. But what I think Ezekiel is calling the people to remember is Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we want to make it about weird stuff. We want to make it about televangelists in wacky suits or those churches that do that weird thing. But what I think is a good definition of the Holy Spirit that's consistent with the entire Bible is the Spirit simply gives life. It helps you to connect with and think about the very sacred nature of every single breath. And if you recognize the sacred breath that you have, not only is that good news for you, but it's good news for the people around you. Because if you are living and breathing, you have a shot. Understanding the sacred nature helps us to understand maybe that God's presence is portrayed in the Old Testament in this way of giving life. And then in the New Testament, I think it's consistent that God basically just looks at groups of people and says, how can I give the best possible life to these people right now? How can I lift them up? How can I remind them of who I am? Richard Rohr says that the book of Ezekiel is, has all this darkness and this difficult stuff, but then it transforms into a book about the restorative love of God because it's really dark, but even so, there's no darkness that God can't overcome. The restorative love of God is still active and moving. And the question that I want to ask is, do we actually believe that? Because that's unbelievably good news. There's a man named Patrick Shermer who lives in Columbus, Ohio. And he decided that he just was going to start praying with people in downtown Columbus. This just started about a year ago. And he just decided, I'm going to just pray with people in my city. And he went and started doing it. And some people are receptive. But he said it was amazing how many people were just saying, oh, sure, yeah, I'd love to pray. So he started doing that. And as he was doing that one day, a lady drives by in her car, and it turns out that uh, she is the president of the local homeless shelter. And she says, would you mind just coming to the meal we have on Wednesday nights? I'll give you your own room, and you can invite people in the trailer. And so he's been doing this over this last year. And this guy isn't all that important. He's not a big deal. The only reason I know this story is my wife does the newsletters for organizations like this. And in this story, he describes how he's helped a few people get housing again. And he's helped a couple people get jobs. And it's not one of those preacher stories that ends with, and then the man became Billy Graham. Well, those stories are great. <laughs> but if we're honest, not every story is like that. And that's okay. In fact, God works through the insignificant things sometimes just as much as the big things. And we believe that, and we lean into that. And this man said about his ministry, I believe prayer is a way God can just come and prove he's alive and loves him. And here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. We can make it weird, but this is something that any of us could do. And it may not be your specific calling, but what if you just ask the question, God, how can I add life? to this place? How can I join in your work, adding life to my community, to my neighborhood, to my church? When we recognize that the breath we have is sacred, and when we use that then to bless others, 
We have no idea what God can do. We make this passage, I think, often about what will happen someday. But what's interesting is God's prophecy is about something that's going to happen eventually, like in living time. Ezekiel's not going to see it, but it's likely that his grandkids do. And if you could make the world a little bit better for your grandkids, you'd do almost anything, right? My four-year-old son just went to Disneyland with his grandparents, and he came home with probably about $200 worth of items because he just wanted everything that was there. And if you were to just press into a hope like that we could make a greater world, a greater reality in this present time, just in a couple generations, if you don't believe that, then I don't know if you're a Jesus person. We don't have to make the world perfect, but we have to continue to strive with hope, not just about one day after we die, <coughs> but a hope. It's about here. We have to lean as communities into a hope that Ezekiel offers that, hey, hey, guys, we don't know exactly when this is going to happen, but God has said we're going back. We're in exile now. And even when they get back, it's not perfect. But one day, hey, we're going back. What would it look like for your church, for you individually, to recapture this? Maybe it starts by just recognizing every breath that we have is sacred and a gift. If you're alive and breathing right now, which I'm pretty sure is everybody in this room, you're the winner of the greatest lottery ever known. And if you're going through a season in your church, it is a season of blessing and growth. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Praise God and lean more to the hope of God. And if you're going through a season of struggle and things are difficult and you're wondering exactly what your future is or what's going to happen, pray together and lean into the hope of God. Because God's not done yet. And if you've got some living, breathing people, I'd say you have a shot. Jesus gives some pretty loose guidelines for that, right? Where two or more gathered, I'm there. I was at a conference one time, and this guy was a mega church pastor, and he said, I know I'm speaking to churches of all different sizes, you guys are leading in different ways. And he said, all big churches are trying to do, here's the secret, is trying to get smaller. Yes. <laughs> of course, together, communally, we can accomplish some wonderful things, but we try to get people in small groups because that's where transformation really happens. Because that's where people rub against each other and the Spirit of God takes off. It's amazing what God can do with things that at first sometimes look pretty hopeless or very insignificant. That church in Auckland ended up being a huge blessing in my life. I was preparing a sermon for uh, the weekend on James 1, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. And I was trying to prepare that and thought, I wish I had a trial to talk about, because my life had been pretty blessed at that point. Don't ever say that, because things will happen. <laughs> Just Google, like, trial, and you'll find something else. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I found out that Friday that my parents were getting a divorce. And it was a messy situation. And I wasn't sure if I should try to go out to that church or not. I had a few friends volunteer, because I was in no shape to preach. But I decided to go out among those people because they had been with me for a year and a half and they had blessed me tremendously already at that point. And I was the song leader and the preacher, so I sent down the song book and got the Bible. 
and I started to speak, it was just overcome with tears. And this was the first time that the guy who always stared out the window, like, tuned in. <laughs>
So this book is not just written to a community in exile. It's written to maybe the person who is most in exile in that community. And what's profound and significant about it is the book of Ezekiel begins with this insane vision of God. This picture of God on the throne. You could argue it's the like, biggest way that God shows up in all of Scripture. It's unbelievable what God does to show Ezekiel his majesty and his presence. This vision has animals and epicness and wheels on wheels. It includes one of the great lines in the Bible as Ezekiel looks at the wheels that the wheels were spinning and they had rims that were high and awesome. I bet you didn't know that West Coast rappers often quoted Ezekiel. <laughs> so profound that a book about exile begins with this amazing picture of and what's crazy is Ezekiel, who is en route to being this full-fledged priest, he would have argued with you. He would have said, God can't show up here like God shows up there. And it's not until he experiences this moment. I think this can happen to people who are closest to God if we aren't careful. Because if we're close to the activity of God, we can quit relying on God. We can quit relying on God moving us forward. So Ezekiel, who finds himself in this dark moment, in this dark place, he has this profound experience. And this continues. The book of Ezekiel, 52 times that word comes up, ruach, breath, spirit, or wind. You could say that the book of Ezekiel is like the long form of the footprints poem. Ezekiel is looking out over his life, and he sees the time in exile, and sees only one set of prints. Ezekiel says, where were you during that time? And God's like, I was with you, homie. Come on. 52 times I'm throughout this entire story. And I know it's hard to see. But rely on me. Rely on my spirit and presence. Even when you feel like you're in exile, even when it sometimes is hard to hope and to have the audacious hope that this passage gives us. Even when the bones feel dry, even when it feels like things aren't going the way that you think they should, have the eyes to see what God is doing. May we have the eyes to see the way that God is breathing life into people. And sometimes it's in larger ways, but oftentimes I think in smaller ways. There's a man named Frank who recently passed away in our church. Frank was the kind of guy that you're so proud that came to your church. He'd been there for a few years. He struggled with a lot of different demons. There was one Sunday that someone was getting baptized and our worship leader said, does anybody else want to get baptized? And Frank just jumped up from the back. And he said, I want to be part of that. And Frank just comes down he confesses Jesus as Lord and we baptize him. And he started serving communion regularly for us. And I started talking after his passing to a lady that came with the church. She said, Brian, you have no idea how much it meant to pray to be part of your church. Every Sunday, we would pull into the parking lot and he would say, do I look good enough to serve communion today? And she would tell him, you look fantastic. She said, you have no choice. I submitted 
we all collectively often have no idea. We have no idea often all the good that our churches do. And I know it can be tough to be part of a church sometimes. It's not always easy to believe that we're working together towards hope. But with God, you just have no idea. When there's a community of people gathered around the mystery of God, you have no idea all the good that's happening. And the main reason for that is you aren't the one doing it all. So those of us who are in full-time ministry, let me say, I know that we spend some time trying to cultivate the best stories from our churches. We want to hear like the best things and we can use them at the end of our sermons or show a powerful testimony video. And that is awesome and I think we should still try to do that. But can we just trust that the best stories, perhaps, that are going on in our churches, you won't ever know about? Just lean into that. Trust that. That you aren't the one doing it. And to ministry leaders, deacons, elders, typically, you're in an exhausting position because you're in a volunteer organization trying to get more volunteers. Which is hard. And you can feel sometimes like, are we really doing what God is calling us to do? Just know that even in those moments, God is with you. To everyone who's a part of the church, we sometimes wonder, is it necessary for me to be there? What's happening as we gather? Should I wake up today or not? Just know how important it is to gather as the community of God together. Because someone needs to be there for Frank to pass communion. There's Franks in every single church. You can't judge a book by its cover because in God's good world, you just never know. And often it's coming together and fighting through difficult times that help us get to the other side of the true life that God offers. You have no idea how much good that your church, that your ministry is doing. Because when you are gathered around the mystery of God, God's Spirit is among you and working through you. And God is always and will forever be in the business of raising people up in unexpected ways. <coughs> May we recognize the sacred gift of God. And recognize that as we receive that gift, we're called to make others aware of it. And we simply just ask the question, how can I have that? How can I help people in my community, in my world, to experience the deeper life that God has called us on? Because you just never know. Let's pray. God, I pray for all of us. I know that some people are in seasons where they feel dry and it's been difficult, but I pray you would give them a special measure of your spirit. Father, may we all rely on your spirit and presence in our lives. May we press more deeply into that reality. And so, forward in us, God, please, people who don't always just quickly judge, but continue to do the work that you've called us to. May we experience the life that you're calling us all to experience, not just someday, but more and more now. May we recognize the sacred breath that you've given to all of us. And may we learn to give that away.
in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.